Gracious Father in heaven, we are so thankful that you are our Father and for what Christ has done. And we ask that your spirit will uh, come to our hearts and minds. Let us join together in unity of love with your kingdom. We pray in your holy name. Amen. We are doing lesson number 12, the quarterly Daniel. And the title of the lesson is From North and South to the Beautiful Land. And we're going to jump into Sunday's lesson, which asks us to read uh, Daniel 11, 1 through 4. And from the NIV, it says... And in the first year of Darius the Mede, I took my stand to support and protect him. Now then, I tell you the truth. Three more kings will appear in Persia, and then a fourth, who will be far richer than all others. When he has gained power by his wealth, he will stir up everyone against the kingdom of Greece. Then a mighty king will appear, who will rule with great power and do as he pleases. After he has appeared, his empire will be broken up and parceled out to the four winds of of heaven. It will uh, not go to his descendants, nor will it have the power he exercised because his empire will be uprooted and given to others. <clears throat> Some people are telling me that when they look at the kings of the north and the south in Daniel 11, they get very confused. Um, I would tell you that the first kind of overview to have as you read here is to recognize Daniel's uh, overall theme is a repetition. It keeps repeating and giving more details. starts in the very beginning with the uh, prophecy of the multi-metaled man. Everybody's familiar with that. And that gives you an overview of kings of Babylon and Medo-Persia and Greece and Rome and then the breaking up and then ultimately Christ setting up his kingdom. But then it repeats with the, um, with the beast, the four different beasts that represent the kingdom. But it gives more detail and does that. And then it repeats again with the goat and the ram. But then it gives more details in that particular one. And then it repeats one more time. And that's what's happening in the kings of the north and the kings of the south. So, if you, with that in mind... Do you recognize in the first four verses what's being described here? Can, any, can you just, from your knowledge of history, recognize a, a king that comes along that is very powerful? It makes an empire, and that empire breaks into four parts. Yeah, we recognize that as Alexander the Great. Yeah. So, if we read the first uh, two paragraphs in Sunday's lesson, it says, Gabriel tells Daniel that three kings will, will rise from Persia. They will be followed by a fourth king who will be the richest one of all and will provoke uh, the Greeks. After Cyrus, three successive kings exerted dominion over, over Persia. Cambyses, the false Smyrtes, Darius, and Darius I. The fourth was Xerxes, mentioned in the book of Esther as the Hazarus. Uh, and he, he, uh, he is very wealthy and marshals a vast army to invade Greece. So he antagonizes Greece, as it says in the lesson, as predicted um, by the prophecy. But in spite of his power, he is repelled by a smaller force of valiant Greek soldiers. It is not difficult to recognize Alexander the Great as the mighty king who arises in Daniel 11.3. And it goes on to talk about how this, uh, uh, his kingdom breaks up into four parts. And ultimately, one of those parts is identified as king of the north, and the other part is king of the south. We'll get to that as we go into Monday. We're going to roll through Monday through Thursday really fast here this morning, because that's where we're going to spend our time when we get down further into the prophecy. This, is, this part really is not too controversial. Most people see and can identify those elements. Monday takes us um, into verses 5 through 14 and depicts the battle between the Hellenistic dynasties, those four um, provinces that broke up after um, Alexander's death. And Tuesday's lesson takes us into verses 16 through 28 and are considered, uh, um, most commentators move beyond the, in these verses, beyond the Hellenistic dynasties into um, Rome as the king of the north. And we will look at that first paragraph. It says, a transition in power from the Hellenistic kings to pagan Rome seems to be depicted in Daniel 11.16. And it quotes, but he who comes against him shall do according to his own will, and no one shall stand against him. He shall stand in the glorious land with destruction 
uh, in his power. The glorious land is Jerusalem, an area where ancient Israel has existed and the new power that takes over the area is pagan Rome. The same event also is presented in the horizontal expansion of the little horn which reaches the glorious land in Daniel 8. Nine. So again, it's repeating stuff you've already been taught in previous chapters. There's a power that comes, a little horn power that extends in the glorious land, and this power extends in the glorious land. So it seems clear that the power in charge of the world at this point is pagan Rome. And this also is confirmed in verse 22, when verse 22 says, Then an overwhelming army will be swept away before him. Both it and a prince of the covenant will be destroyed. And the prince of the covenant refers to... Jesus, and Rome was the power uh, in, in charge and, and that crucified the Prince of the Covenant. Wednesday's lesson. Are you impressed at how fast we're getting through the lesson this week, guys? <laughs> Oftentimes I don't make it out of Sabbath, so we're moving. Wednesday's lesson takes us uh, verses 29 to 39, transitions from literal Israel, literal Israel, to spiritual Israel, and from pagan Rome as the king of the north to Christian Rome as the king of the north. And we will read the par- We will read the, the lesson on Wednesday. Daniel 11, 29-30, and it refers to a new power system. Although this system stands in, in continuation of pagan Roman Empire, it inherits some characteristics of its predecessor. At the same time, it seems to be different in some aspects. The biblical text says that it shall not be like the former or the latter. As we look further, we find that it acts as a religious power. It aims to attack mainly, it aims its attack mainly at God and his people. Let us look at some of the actions perpetrated by this king. First, he will act in rage against the Holy Covenant. Think that, rage against the Holy Covenant. What's the Holy Covenant? The Holy Covenant is God's plan of salvation, and this king opposes it. Um, Second, the king will produce forces that will defile the sanctuary and take away the daily sacrifice. And we're going to unpack that in a moment, but you can already start applying what that might mean, defile the sanctuary. What sanctuary? We'll come to that. Remember Second Thessalonians, hopefully, about this man of sin who sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. We noted in Daniel 8 that the little horn casts down the foundation of God's sanctuary and takes away the daily sacrifices. Uh, the, this must be understood as a spiritual attack against Christ's ministry in the heavenly sanctuary. So again, the parallels, repeating what was in Daniel 8, just describing it in a different way. Third, as a consequence of his attack on the sanctuary, this power places the abomination of desolation in God's temple. Think that through, man of sin again, setting himself up in God's temple. The parallel expression, transgression of desolation, points to the acts of apostasy and rebellion by the little horn. Fourth, the power persecutes God's people, some of those under understanding, some of those of understanding shall fall to refine them, purify them, and make them white until the time of the end. This reminds us of the little horn which casts down the hosts of some of the, of the starry hosts and trampled them. And then fifth, this king will exalt and magnify himself above every god and speak blasphemies against God. And this, of course, reminds us again of the little horn power. It becomes pompous and blasphemous. So, do you see there's a transition here from historic states or powers that were actually battling each other um, Xerxes in Persia attacking Greece and then the city-state or the nation-states of Greece, the king of the north and king of the south and pagan Rome, and then it transitions now into spiritual application. Uh, This transition happens at the time when Christ is crucified and rises again and the gospel goes to the world and now we find that spiritual, literal things of Old Testament times have spiritual application after the cross. 
For instance, Babylon was a literal nation in Old Testament times, but in Revelation, Babylon does not refer to a nation anymore. It refers to a system of confusion and false beliefs. And so this is how this is transitioning at this point. Thursday's lesson that takes us into Daniel eleven forty to 45. And there are a variety of interpretations for these texts. And we really want to keep in mind now this is where we live today as we read about the king of the north and the king of the south, and hopefully I can make this clear to you, we're not actually talking about literal nations anymore. We're talking about systems or movements that, that are warring. So, but the historic view, there, in uh, the November 2019 Adventist Review, there was an article that summarized a theological conference that was held in Barron Springs, and I've got the reference in the notes, that discussed the three different primary views on Daniel 11. Uh, and particularly these verses. The historic view that came from Uriah Smith uh, is that the king of the north represents Turkey and the king of the south represents Egypt. That's the historic view. And uh, he wrote about that in 1884. And um, the king of the north represented by the Ottoman Empire in Turkey and or potentially, some are saying, a reincarnated um, caliphate in Turkey uh, at the end of time, uh, posing the king of the south, which is Egypt. That view is really not that popular. That's a historic view, but not really that popular today. The next two views are actually more popular. The second is the most, but the third is gaining some popularity. And the second is that the the king of the north is the papacy, and the king of the south represents atheism. And the second position takes the... uh, point that this is the time of the end, at the time of the end, this, the, these are these two powers that are warring, and historic Babylon becomes spiritual Babylon, historic Israel becomes the, uh, the church, which is the, the people of God, or the uh, heirs of Abraham. Uh, thus, uh, although the position identifies historic actors, from verse 23 onward, these historic actors no longer are considered earthly powers as far as nation states go, uh, and not acting in the city of Jerusalem, but rather represent spiritual powers that manifest in earthly realities. The papacy is the king of the north, and, um, and then at 1798, the powers of atheism arising. And they would identify this as the, uh, the French Revolution. And in 1798, the end of the 1260-year power, if you remember, the French Revolution rejected God and put up the goddess of reason. And they are the ones that went in and gave the, the, if this atheism is the king of the south, it attacks the king of the north, which is the papacy, and it goes in and gives a wound at that time by taking the pope captive and breaking the papal powers over the nation-states of Europe um, with the Napoleonic uh, general um, Befer, who went in and did that. And so this is how they would see king of the north being... um, and I, I call it King of the North, my own view is false Christianity rather than papacy, because I think it extends beyond Catholicism to all Christianity that is infected with the imperial view of God as a, as a, as a dictator and the source of punishment. So, but regardless, um, this, uh, this atheistic power who rejects God, it's a goddess of reason, there is no God, atheism coming out of this is what goes in and gives this wound to the King of the North, which is um, the papacy. This is how this view is thought. I expand, and I, uh, again, including all of Christianity that embraces and promotes the false law construct. And I see this uh, as a false Christianity being the king of the north fighting against atheism, humanism, and progressivism as the king of the south. And the king of the north suffered a defeat by atheism for a period, and it's not just 
the papal powers, in my view, Christianity has suffered a defeat for the last hundred years by atheism. In, in the Western world, and this has uh, been damaging. Period. But if you read the Bible prophecy, the king of the north is going to strike back against the king of the south and destroy the king of the south. Okay? In uh, the book, The Great Controversy, one of the founders of the SDA Church wrote the following. It's page 269. The great city in whose streets the witnesses are slain and where their dead bodies lie is spiritually Egypt. Of all, remember, we're, the king of the south in these prophecies is, is identified as Egypt. Okay, in, the, in, in Daniel 11. So here we're spiritually Egypt. Of all the nations presented in Bible history, Egypt was most boldly, most boldly denied the existence of the living God and resisted his commands. No monarch ever ventured upon more open and high-handed rebellion uh, against the authority of heaven than did the king of Egypt when the message was brought by Moses. In the, same, in the name of the Lord, Pharaoh proudly answered, Who is Jehovah that I should hearken unto his voice and let Israel go? I know not Jehovah, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. This is atheism, and the nation represented by Egypt would give voice to a similar denial of the claims of the living God and would manifest a like spirit of unbelief and defiance. The great city is also compared spiritually to Sodom. The corruption of Sodom is in breaking the law of God and especially manifest in licentiousness. And this city, and this sin, was also to be preeminent characteristic of the nation that should fulfill the specifics of the scripture. So this is, uh, this is the uh, French Revolution, rejecting God completely, uh, in, uh, creating the goddess of reason that they worship for, for three and a half years or something over there, or declared. Now, does anybody know a, a nation today that uh, has the goddess of reason, um, um, let's say... Um, appreciated and valued and put in images and shared all over the... And, and becomes an actual symbol of the nation. Yeah. Anybody know? Seriously. Goddess of Reason, created by the French and given to this nation as a gift from the French. The Statue of Liberty. The Statue of Liberty is actually the Goddess of Reason. Did you not know that? No. Yes. Yes, it's the, it was given as a gift from the French. The light bearer. The light bearer of reason. And it's also feminine. Right. Okay. They, they, they rejected, this whole thing was a rejection of God's design. And, uh, and so you could, you could connect now that the goddess of reason, which is atheism, which is human, humanism, which is progressivism, is now the god of the Western Western societies. So did, did France give that to the United States with that in mind? Uh, I, I, you'd have to, you know, plumb the depths of the particular politicians. I don't know if the French did, but I think there were forces behind the scenes that clearly were. Huh. Could we extend this beyond the literal France and French, and can you see that there's a bigger battle going on? It's a worldwide battle between the king of the north... Not Christianity, as Jesus represented it. False Christianity. Corrupted Christianity. Penal legal Christianity. Authoritarian Christianity. This is the king of the north. You understand in Bible uh, symbolism, where does God reside? Where did Satan in Isaiah want to establish his throne? In the heights of the north. Okay, So the north is symbolic of where God resides, and, 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 and this is why Satan is always wanting to take over the north. And many of the myths and fantasies have various mythical uh, people coming from the north, like Santa Claus at the North Pole. Okay, 
because the north is, is where God actually reigns and Satan wants to take that over. So this system of, of representing the king of the north would be a system that actually claims to represent God. It would not deny God. It would claim to be God's representative or act for God or even speak for God or even be God. This is false Christianity with its corruption. We'll get into it. The king of the south would be the opposite of that. This is Egypt represented, which is paganism, excuse me, atheism, which denies the existence of God. Now, if you look over the last, since 1798, the battles between these two ideas. So here's what I see happening through history. Christ came in human form, presented the truth about God, and procured the remedy to sin. Approximately 2,000 years ago. The apostolic church embraced this truth, and the gospel spread, and many pagan, non-God-believing people were converted to Christ over the next several hundred years, and the church spread throughout the Roman Empire, the true church. Satan counterattacks, though, with an infection to Christianity of imperial law. God's law functions like human law. God runs his universe like Caesar runs Rome. God makes up rules and God is the enforcer of rules. And everything becomes penal legal. And God runs his government like humans run their government. And thus, Christianity becomes false Christianity at this point. The system of imperialism. And the world goes into an age of darkness. And it's not simply that they begin using Satan's methods of coercion by the king of the north now having crusades down into the Holy Land to attack and so forth. Okay, It's not just a burning at the stake, it's not just inquisitions, but imperial law led to the infection of the spirit temple with all types of really bizarre dark, darkening of the mind stuff uh, from the magic of the Eucharist to um, the holy ground that you must be buried in. If you're not buried in holy, this, this ground is holy. And if you've committed suicide, you can't be buried in holy ground. All kinds of weird things like this. Uh, a purgatory, um, indulgences, denial of science. Uh, no, Galileo, the earth does not revolve around the sun because we've read the scripture and we know it's not that way. A denial of science. And this led people who actually studied. And so understand, imperial law, imposed law, is not connected to reality. It's just made up. God's laws, design laws, are how reality is built. So now we're going to have tension arising in human history. We're going to have people who are observers of nature, studying nature. And we would call those people today scientists. Okay. So as the scientists come along, and they actually start studying nature, Galileo, for instance, they're identifying constants in nature, laws that never change. They never vary because God never changes and his laws never vary. And they're comparing that to this system of arbitrary crazy stuff coming out of a dark ages church that rejected God's design law and made up a bunch of rules. And what happened is they found reality in life doesn't actually work like these people say. Reality in life works like nature reveals it to work. And so now we have this rejection of God because God is presented as an arbitrary dictator that doesn't make sense and is contradict, contradictory to how reality and nature actually works. And now we have then the king of the south, atheism, attacking the king of the north, false Christianity, and saying, and, and actually, and saying this, there is no God. And we see what's happened over the last 200 years. What's happened in the last 200 years? Who's been winning in Western society? 
Secularism, atheism. Secularism, humanism, atheism is winning because Christianity has still been embracing and trying to promote Christianity through this imperial law lie. Um, this led to the science, and, uh, which is based in God's book of nature, rejecting that form of Christianity. But today, I'm going to just tell you, as science is advancing, many scientists, through studying the laws and what they're discovering in science, are actually coming back to a belief in God. The king of the north is ultimately going to win again. And we're talking about scientists who study the human genome. And they look at life and they realize that while you can have these theories about how natural forces might have uh, exploded in some way and and, and created certain um, physiological molecules necessary for life, there is no humanistic natural theory on how you can get complex coded information. Which is in your DNA. So it's not just the molecules have to exist. Those molecules have to be coded precisely to, to, um, to um, transmit information, data. It'd be like, okay, we have the letters of the alphabet. They just have, through storms and, and raging seas and lightning, the, ro- they were, uh, the, the rocks were honed and broken and brittle. And eventually, over the millions of years, some of those rocks formed letters of the alphabet. Okay, so you've got the letters of the alphabet. Do you, does that mean because you have the 26 letters of the alphabet that are now here and available that naturally, all by themselves, they form the Encyclopedia Britannica? <laughs> it's just not possible. And scientists know this. So now they, they are, they, many scientists are going, there has to be some intelligence out there. But they can't reconcile with Christianity because Christianity still teaches this arbitrary, nonsensical dictator God who operates contrary to how reality works. But, but my point is science is where we're at. It's leading many of them back to a belief in God. So we have a remnant church that is called at this time in history to oppose both the king of the north and the king of the south. The, the remnant church with the three angels' message gives an eternal gospel that God is not like this imperial dictator the king of the north says. He is the creator. He is the builder of reality. And it also opposes the king of the south that says there is no God. Yes, there is a creator, and he built reality run on design laws. And so the message of the three angels of this remnant church is a message that will actually oppose both king of the north and king of the south. Thoughts about that? Well, our remnant church has been teaching false. So if you think about this, the king of the north and the king of the south throughout this, this uh, prophecy is their primary goal to destroy each other. Do you think that's what their primary goal is? Or was, or was the primary goal to destroy the people living in the Holy Land? God's people. We'll come back to that. Let's go to the third example, and then we'll re-unpack this more. So we have, we had first, uh, one, one is uh, Turkey and Egypt. King of the North is Turkey. King of the South is Egypt. Two, papacy and atheism. I like this one very much. The third potential uh, interpretation is King of the North is papacy. King of the South, South is Islam. And Islam, of course, you can see that the king of the north, and, they, and they, they take and unpack the attacking back and forth as the crusades in Jerusalem, and uh, the Christians had it at one point, and the Islam has it, and it goes back and forth, and currently Islam has it. And, and if you read the Bible prophecy, um, there will be one more striking back where the king of the north, which is now Christianity... They don't view this as false Christianity. They view this as Christianity. That Islam is going to make one more king of the attack. And some people predict that Islam is going to attack 
and have an explosion, a bomb, a nuclear weapon, a dirty bomb uh, against the papacy in Rome. They're actually going to blow it up. Islam is going to blow up the papacy, the you know, Vatican. And that will trigger all the Christian nations to uh, go and destroy the Islamic states um, around the world. Um, this is uh, what some people are predicting. I'm not saying Adventist people here, but I've, I've seen this online. Has anybody else seen this? Yes. Yeah. Um, I don't like this view as much. I think there, I can see where people have it, and it, perhaps there's some element to it. Uh, it's not my favorite view, though. Do we agree, though, that in the prophecy of Daniel 11, there is a transition from imperial Rome to Christ, Christian Rome in the prophecy? And we go from literal states to these more global powers represented by king of the north and king of the south. If we're correct in this, it takes us beyond the local region of Palestine to a worldwide problem. Thus, when we read Revelation about the Battle of Armageddon, we don't get caught up into the the stories about there's going to be a battle in a little tiny area of the Middle East called Palestine. We understand the Battle of Armageddon is a worldwide battle for the hearts and minds of people. So this prophecy takes us beyond Palestine to something that's going on worldwide. It's no longer about genetic descendants of Abraham, but spiritual descendants. Those who have faith like Abraham are children of Abraham. So it's not genetic descendants being harassed in Palestine, but God's people being harassed by the two sides. The king of the north representing false Christianity and the king of the south representing atheism or Islam. And our, God, and our Christian folk, the good Christian people who are really on God's team, are they also harassed by both sides? The penal, legal, oppressive Christianity, as well as the atheism or even Islam. I think, um, you know, so maybe the king of the south represents both atheism and Islam together. What is the impact upon God's people of these conflicts? See, so the question, does Satan... Um, <coughs> Use the two sides against each other. This is my theory. Satan uses the king of the north, false Christianity, and the king of the south, either atheism or Islam, to fight against each other, not to destroy each other, but to trick Christians into choosing one of those two sides. Side with the king of the north or side with the king of the south. Pick a side. And, 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 And whichever side you pick, king of the north or king of the south, you're choosing to pick Satan's side because they're both his. That's what I really think is going on. Let me give you some examples. Could we get caught up in a conflict of whether we should have prayer in schools, in public schools? Christianity promoting prayer in schools versus atheism opposing prayer in schools. Could this lead to good Christian folks, good-hearted Christian folks, being tricked into choosing the side of the king of the north false Christianity that would seek to force its religious views upon others through the power of the state while denying the liberty of those who don't want to have prayer schools. Could you see that possibility? Could you see other good Christian people who recognize the principles of liberty as being godly and being tricked into siding with the king of the south, atheism, and promoting a system that denies God and a indoctrinating generations of children into a false belief system that hardens their heart against God and makes it harder for them to come to know God. So regardless of which side, if you pick either side, let's, put, let's, let's, let's have prayer in our public schools, let's not have prayer in our public schools, you've been tricked. Possible? Yes. Yes. 
Come on, people. So, so what would an answer be? What would be what, if you're going to apply the godly principles? What would an answer be to solve that problem? Follow your conscience. Well, my solution would be if you live in a society where that society determines legislatively that their citizenry are required to go to school and be educated. Not all societies do. But if the society determines you must be educated, then I would recommend the society provide the resources to the families and let the families choose the schools. We call that a voucher, by the way. And the, and the state will regulate the basic academic requirements that schools must meet in order to be able to receive the voucher. So there's certain academic standards, but the state will not be involved in any way in what religion people are being taught in those schools. So some kids may be sent to an Islamic school, some may to a Jewish school, some may go to a Christian school, some may go to an atheist school. But guess what? The state's not involved in promoting. Families are choosing where their kids go. And so it's a very simple solution. You will find that solution gets a lot of opposition. How about this one? And prepare yourselves. Hold on. I want everybody to take a chill pill before I even say this. What, what about getting caught up in the conflict over abortion? Now, this is not all you people online about whether abortion is right or wrong. Any more than my previous example was about whether prayer was right or wrong. It's not a debate about whether prayer is right or wrong. It's about how do you, what methods do you apply in pursuing prayer? This is a question about what methods you apply on the abortion question. But whether we get tricked into using Satan's method to achieve God's goal, that's the real problem here. So could good Christian folks who value life and want to protect it get tricked in deciding with the king of the north, false Christianity, and seek to pass laws to force people to practice their moral views regardless of circumstances? Could that happen? Oh, how about this one? Could ideas be put forth by good Christian folks aligning with the king of the north that say... We believe that every child is a gift of God. I hear this over and over again. Over and over again. And could such rhetoric confuse people who don't know God, such as children, adolescents, or young women who've been raped or sexually abused or assaulted and become pregnant, and they look and ask the question, was rape the gift that God gave me? Because I was told that all children are a gift of God and I got pregnant by rape. Is that God's gift to me? Could good Christian people get tricked in siding with the king of the north to promote false views about God? How about on the other side? Could other people, good-hearted, I will say this time, good-hearted people who care about others, may or may not be Christian, recognize the principles of liberty and side with the king of the south? They might even go as far as to say there is no God. It's just your body. Make any choice you want. And in so doing, lead some, notice my my, my word here, some, not all, some women to make choices they later regret. Do you see the trap again? How about this one? Any any comments about that? You guys are awful quiet today. The Scarlet A. A. Could it lead Christians and Islamic Muslims to conflict? 
Could those who value Christian principles be tricked by the king of the north to believe that it is godly to use physical might and power to go to war against those who are a threat and we should eradicate Islam because it's the religion of terrorists? Could millions of good-hearted people be tricked by the king of the south, in this case, Islam, into believing America and Christianity are the great Satan and they should use whatever means necessary to kill the infidel? Any thoughts? Did you think about all this when you were reading about King of the North and King of the South? (laughs) But this is the real thing we're supposed to look. When you have spiritual application, understand the temple that is being defiled. We talked about this king is going to seek to defile the temple, this power, this King of the North. How does he do it? By setting himself up in God's temple, how does he do it? By getting you to believe God is like a Roman Caesar and how he governs. And therefore, if God is that way, then it's godly to use power to punish sinners. And this is how historic Christians could do some of the most atrocious things in history. And I would tell you that if certain Christians in this world got unfettered reins of power, they would do the same thing today. So we allow the prophecy to go beyond Palestine and the genetic descendants of Abraham to encompass the entire world, do we recognize that neither the king of the north nor the king of the south is part of God's kingdom? That means you can't side with either one and be in God's kingdom. This is the trap. And I will tell you, I think many Christians are being trapped by the king of the north. False Christianity, imperial Christianity, Christianity that seeks uh, to enforce its way upon others because they think it's a righteous act to do. So how do we stay faithful to God while these two forces are fighting each other and you're being recruited to choose sides? And you are being recruited every day. If you watch anything or read anything in today's media, you're being recruited constantly. Many of the pastors and preachers are constantly. You listen to Christian radio, I'm telling you, you're being recruited. You're being propagandized. If you don't have discernment, and what does the Bible prophesy about that? If it were possible, even the elect would be deceived. So... Are you, are you seeing that you're being recruited? How do we? So the question, how do you maintain faithfulness to God while the two sides are actively recru- recruiting you to pick one side? Yes. First, you have to understand that God's law is design law. And when you accept God's law as, as design law, then you can understand that it's truth, love, and freedom that are the most important. And so one of the very amazing things about this when this country was formed is they specifically separated church and state so that the church people would have freedom to do what they thought was right and the state wouldn't interfere. And so when we see the Constitution and that principle being threatened, then we need to do what we can to maintain freedom, even if it means that we allow bad people to do bad things. The important thing is freedom for freedom, because God gives us freedom. I love where you're going with that, and I think this is absolutely essential. If we're not going to be pulled into either side, that we first have an understanding of God's character, methods, and principles, meaning his design laws. If we don't understand his laws and how they work, if we actually buy into the idea his laws work like human laws, we are already on the side of the king of the north. Because that's how his system works. And then it's just a matter of identifying the right rules. 
and that's where all the denominations come from. The denominations come because they're, well, you, you, you say it's baptism by sprinkling. We know the right way is immersion. It's all arguing the right rules. And if you get the right set, then you've got your checklist. You had 99 right, but that last hundredth one, you didn't wash your feet right. On the right day. On the right day. Therefore, you know, you didn't get all the checklists done on the right rules. You didn't keep the right rules. You're still guilty. That's the king of the north. How do we identify? Understand, everybody agree with me now as I point this out, that the king of the north and the king of the south are both agencies of Satan. You can't join either one and be on God's side, if you see that. Then, how can we consistently and reliably identify the movements of Satan, whether it's the king of the north or the king of the south? How can you say, ah, that's not godly, that's Satan's kingdom? What can you use consistently to to, to identify that? Yes, the methods they use. The methods they use. Satan's methods always come along. And you can look at the, uh, the temptations of Christ. Method number one, or in Eden, method number one is deceit. He tried to deceive Christ, even quoting scripture to do so. It's always deception. If deception doesn't work, what's the next method he used on Christ? Coercion. No, 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 it wasn't coercion. Fear. Inducement. Lies were the first method. What was the second method? Fear. Not fear. Selfishness. You're getting closer. It is it's playing on selfishness. That's right inducement, the bribe. All the kingdoms of the world I will give to you. I will pay you richly to side with me. And fear was in there too. You won't have to then go through this suffering. You have the the, the shortcut route to your goal to govern the world. Just recognize me and you won't have to suffer to get there. I'll just bribe you. So lies, inducements, and then the third, coercion. Always ends up coercive. Never leaves you free. But that doesn't mean Satan starts with coercion. He certainly could. It doesn't have to come in that order. But typically he starts with lies. Some type of deception. That's our modern media. I will just tell you. If you don't have discernment when you listen to the media, it is constantly trying to deceive you. Constantly. I I would love to, to do a class maybe sometime where we just took headlines. Headlines. And just go through them and show you the lies embedded. How they phrase things. They phrase things in a way to create a false narrative in your head. The rhetoric that is used is designed to propagandize over and over again. It's very corrupt. And if you don't have discernment skills, then you read things and you you think you know something, but you actually don't know. So lies. Lies. um, So you look at the methods. Methods being used. And Satan always, system will always also... Use the human law model. Pass some rule, pass some law, and then coercively enforcement, threat of punishment. The system will always get there. Remember what it says about the beast of Revelation. When it, when it finally starts using its power, how does it use its power? No one can buy or sell, say him who has the mark of the beast. Coercion. We call those today economic sanctions. That's what that is. It's an economic sanction. You cannot do economy. You can't buy and sell. You can't trade unless you accept our mark. And what, what beast leads the world, world in that, according to Revelation? What nation? 
And which nation is the economic powerhouse? It's getting stronger. We are getting stronger. I can tell you with this uh, current administration, our trade position has gone significantly up. We have much more economic power in the world than we had prior. Which means we can bring more economic pressure to bear on people in the world than we ever could before. Yes. And that's the problem with vouchers, is because they're afraid that federal dollars will then go along with federal legislation against us. You know, we're, we're afraid to take the federal dollars because the federal government can tell us, tell us whatever they want us to do. So that would have to be that would be a concern that'd have to be built into the legislation that that the money goes to the parents, the voucher goes to the parents, the parents spend it. And they can only spend it at schools that meet certain academic requirements, but it's ex- explicitly um, um, restricted from um, in- enforcing any religious or... So that, that would have to be how it was originally set up. Because you're right, if that wasn't the case, then after you start taking it, they come along and say, oh, well, you don't allow same-sex couples at your school, then, w- then you can't have these vouchers anymore. So they would have to be set up to protect against beliefs that would go contrary to certain um, politically correct concepts in our in our. But that's, that's the beauty of it, really, though. Uh, why should we be offended if some parents have certain religious beliefs that uh, marriage is between a man and a woman and others see it differently? Um, this is the part of liberty. One of the things that you'll find in our society as well is that there, from, from the progressive left, there is this constant screaming of oppression and unwillingness to give them freedom. The constant screaming, while at the same time they don't want to give other people freedom in their world to do the way they think and the way they want to raise their children to believe it differently. You're not free to do that. You need to teach them what we think is right. So while they demand freedom for the way they want to live their lives, they're not willing to give freedom to people on the other side. It's very corrosive. And thus they uh, allege that, you, that you're the abuser of freedom. This is classic uh, Satan's, another one of Satan's methods. Not only is it lies, Satan does evil, and then he projects the evil back on God. He blames God for it. Watch for this in society. Watch for it. You will find certain um, sectors of our society doing very corrupt things, but then blaming the other side and accusing them of actually the source of it. It's everywhere. Okay? It's constant. Constant. So watch for it. So we, we identify the movements of Satan by looking for his methods. And that requires that you first ground yourself in Scripture, understand God's nature, understand his character, understand his methods, understand his design laws. Come back and test those. Um, God always uses truth presented in love while leaving people free. We leave people free. Where does you, maybe we should have this conversation. Where does your freedom end? Where mine begins. Where's that line? And I will tell you, the, the whole question, if we're going to come back to the whole question on the abortion, is the two views on where life begins. That's where it's all, because nobody, this is where Donald Trump really exposed certain cognitive uh, problems with the pro-life community. When he was running for president in 2016, one of his rallies, he said that we should pass legislation to, to prosecute women who get an abortion because they're murdering children, and we should put them in prison. He said that. It's public record. One time. Because there was a backlash against that. Where do you think the backlash came? From the, pro-life, from the pro-choice community or the pro-life community? Not from the pro-choice. The pro-choice didn't say anything about it. The pro-life community from, just came down on him with an, a rabid crushing, do not, stop, no, we will not. Why not? Why? 
You guys have heard the tragic stories, multiple cases. Susan Smith, 25 years ago or whenever it was, approximately, I don't know, 20 years ago, had two children, put them in a car, ran them into the ocean and drowned because her boyfriend didn't want the kids. Does anybody pro-life or pro-choice argue that whether she should be prosecuted or not? No. Everybody recognizes it. We hear the stories all the time of, of children, babies who have been killed after birth. Nobody argues whether they should be prosecuted. And that, because we understand that's murder of, an, of another person. Your freedoms end where that person's begins, right? Well, why would the pro-life community not want to prosecute women who get abortions? Why wouldn't they? Seriously, why? They should. They don't believe that. That, that is the argument that some make, that the pro-life community truly don't believe that the unborn are, are really people. If they believed it, then they would prosecute them, just like there's no question, black and white. You see an infant... Like that infant over there, and someone killed that infant, there's no question that that person should be prosecuted. But there is question, not in the pro-choice community, in the pro-life community there's question about that. And that's because there really isn't clear, authoritative resource that tells you when a fertilized egg actually becomes a person. There's no authoritative resource that tells you that. It's all up to your perspective and opinion. And that's where freedom comes in. I'm not here to tell anybody anything other than God's methods of truth, love, and freedom. And when you begin coercing people, and so our freedoms end where somebody else's begins. So I don't have the freedom to tell you what to do with your life. But if you begin injuring other people by your behavior, then in love, if I love you, if I love you and you're injuring other people, what action will I take? Appropriate restraint. Restraining power. Not coercive power. Not to say do this or else, but because when you understand design law, what happens in the mind, heart, character of the person perpetrating evil? Sears their conscience, warps their character, hardens their heart. If you love that person, you restrain them. Even if they don't convert, you still minimize damage to themselves. You limit it and damage to others. And hopefully, and, this, and, and there are many, many stories of people who were out there perpetrating evil, doing crimes, acting to exploit others for their own, uh, own selfish gain, that got put in prison, restraining power, and in prison... They had time to reflect. Prison ministries met with them, and many have given their hearts to the Lord, and they came out different people. That is not punishment, seeking to exact vengeance. That is redemptive power, seeking to stop a person from destroying themselves and give them opportunity for repentance. Do you see the difference? That's what love does. Love actually steps in to restrain, to stop the purpose. And by the way, what's the definition of evil? Do you understand evil and sin are not the same thing? Sin is a condition of being out of harmony with God's design. All nature groans under the weight of sin. Animals and plants, plants now have thorns and toxins because the nature has been corrupted out of harmony with God's original design. Animals uh, will, will, are predatory now and they will kill each other for, for survival. This is not how God designed it. But these animals are not evil. Plants are not evil. But they're corrupted by sin. What is evil? Exploiting others for selfish gain. Correct. Evil is when the sin condition causes us to act to exploit another person for your own benefit. 
And in every society of the world, regardless of whether they believe in God or not, the definition of evil is the same. Exploiting other people for your own selfish gain. It's evil. That's what it is. And it's the opposite of love, which seeks to uplift others, even if at your expense. And that's the opposite. So when you think about those principles of liberty, God's kingdom, truth, presented in love, leaving people free, watch the systems of the king of the north, king of the south, king of the south's principle, if we go with evolutionism and atheism, what is the law of evolutionism and atheism? What's the law? survival of the fittest the strong survive and therefore if you really believe that kingdom and that's the way it works then it is absolutely righteous for the strongest to abuse the weakest to get their advantage to pass their genetic code along so when a bunch of arabic men went into somalia and began raping all the women so that and they did it specifically they said so there would be more children born with arab genetics This is the king of the south. That's the survival of the fittest, passing their genome along so they can survive. That's a righteous act if that's your king, and that's the law of the universe. But God's kingdom doesn't work that way. That's actually antithetical. God's kingdom is greater love is no man that he give his life for a friend. It's the opposite of that. uh, Interesting, an article in the Adventist uh, Review... um, published by the Biblical Research... No, it's, it's the Biblical Research Institute, Engel Rodriguez, published in, uh, in 2015 on Daniel 11. And he makes some interesting insights in Daniel 11. He makes the case that the prophecies are not merely local and geographical, but have a cosmic conflict, that Michael and Gabriel are involved here, if you read. And so this is going on something bigger than just a local event. He connects the events of Daniel with the events of Revelation and makes the case that both books are describing a conflict that goes beyond human history. It's a cosmic conflict. In the Bible, God's throne or place of rulership is being referred to as the north, and Satan wants to put his, his throne there. The king of the south is identified in Daniel's Egypt, uh, which is the power that rejects Yahweh, and thus it represents godlessness in all its forms, paganism, atheism, etc. The biblical research article makes a compelling case that Daniel 11 draws from the backdrop of the greatest and most important event in Israel's history. And what's the greatest and most important event in Israel's history? The Exodus. The Exodus from Egypt. And so the backdrop of, he makes the case, and I'm going to go through some of the examples of this backdrop. God's hand was against Egypt during the Exodus. Now the king of the north's hand is against Egypt. God led an Exodus from Egypt where the king of the north leads a return to Egypt. And think that through. If we, what we said is right, ultimately the king of the north leads, if you, if you follow the king of the north, it leads to godless view of the world. It rejects the truth about God. God used the waters of the Red Sea to destroy Pharaoh's army, and in Daniel 11, the king of the north is described as a flood coming out to destroy Egypt. The reference of chariots and horsemen uh, in Daniel 11 echoes the references to Pharaoh's army being destroyed um, when they were chasing the Hebrews. Edom, Moab, and the Ammonites are referenced in Exodus from Egypt and were people not to be conquered. These are also mentioned in Daniel 11, the three specific ones, Edom, Moab, and Ammonites, not to be conquered by the king of the north. uh, Israel took silver, gold, and precious things from Egypt. Now the king of the north does. Israel left Egypt to meet God on the holy mountain, Sinai, where if you read Daniel 11, the king of the north leads Egypt to go to the holy mountain. Israel was commanded to exterminate the Canaanites, and the king of the north heads out to exterminate Israel, God's people. 
So the article makes a compelling case that the imagery of Daniel 11 is trying to give us new insights on the backdrop of something that all Israelites would know, the story of the Exodus. God's people went from Canaan, so, so it, there, are, there are spiritual lessons for us in this. And I'm going to point some of them out. God's people went from Canaan down to Egypt. Remember Joseph down to Egypt and they brought him down, for the, down to Egypt, but then became captives in Egypt, but then were delivered by God and returned to Canaan. Adam and Eve left Eden, went into the world and became captives and slaves of sin in Satan's kingdom. And Jesus sets us free and delivers us back to our Eden home. There's a parallel there. God sent the plagues upon Egypt to reveal the impotence of their false gods in order to free the minds of the people from the belief in them and turn their hearts back to him. At the end of time, the plagues fall upon Babylon the Great. And the trials and difficulties occur to wake up the world to realize the Babylonian system of the world, the system of Jesus, is not the system of life. There is a true God and turn hearts and minds back to God. God led the people through the Red Sea on the way to the promised land. Paul refers to this as a symbol of baptism, which is when we die to the old selfish ways and are reborn into a new life in Christ. It is only through the rebirth that we can enter the promised land. The waters of the Red Sea destroyed also the forces. Not only is it symbolic of baptism of the people, dying to the old life, and then they're prepared to enter into the promised land. We go through baptism, die to the old life, we're ready to enter the heavenly promised land. But the waters of the Red Sea destroyed the forces of Egypt. And the cleansing waters of God, which represent the Holy Spirit, destroy the forces of this world in our hearts and minds. Fear, selfishness, shame, guilt. Where is the battle fought? Second Corinthians 10, it's... For though we live in the world, we don't wage war as the world does. The weapons we use are not worldly. They have divine power to demolish strongholds. It's fought in our hearts and minds. And the weapons of God that demolish Satan's strongholds, truth and love, which are the weapons of God brought by the spirit of truth and love, and are metaphorically represented by water and life. God gave the manna to them, the bread of heaven, to eat in the wilderness. And Jesus said, I am the bread of heaven that has come down and we are to partake of him. And as physical food goes into your body, bread is broken down into molecules, becomes building blocks to your body. Jesus, the word made flesh, is the source of truth. And as we partake of Christ, we're partaking of truth. Those truths become concepts or building blocks of ideas, beliefs, which actually destroy and expunge the lies, wins us back to trust. And then we open the heart and we receive the wine. And the wine is a metaphor for the blood and the blood is a metaphor for the life. And we receive the life of Christ. So it's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. Edom, Moab, and the Ammonites were not killed by Israel. The Edomites were the descendants of Esau, brother of Jacob. Moabites were the descendants of Lot from his oldest daughter. And the Ammonites were the descendants of Lot from his youngest daughter. In other words, they were all related genetically to Abraham. They were allowed to join Israel. Instead of being destroyed, they were given an opportunity to join Israel if they converted from all three of these groups. These represent the peoples of the world that are allowed to join the church if they're converted. Ruth was a Moabitess and also a progenitor of Christ. Jeremiah 49, God predicts the destruction for the Ammonites who worship Molech. By the way, who was Molech? Molech was the God who required human sacrifice to appease him. 
Molech is uh, also um, the god that many Christians worship because they worship a god who requires a human sacrifice to appease him. That's Molech worship. Jesus had to die and present the blood of a sinless human sacrifice to his father so the father will grant us pardon and not kill us. That's Molech worship. God, God in, in Jeremiah predicts the destruction of the Ammonites who worship Molech, but states that in the end he will restore the fortune of the Ammonites. How will he do that? By getting them to reject this Molech God and accept the truth. It says, in that day I will destroy, I will excuse me, restore David's fallen tent. I will repair its broken places, restore its ruins, and build it as it used to be, so that they may possess the remnants of Edom and all the nations that bear my name. Edom bears the name of God? See, God seeks to save, understand the big picture. Adam and Eve are the parents of all human beings. Okay, when they sinned, all humanity became infected with this condition. God seeks to save human beings from every branch of the human family. The Bible's primary focus If you read Old Testament scripture, the primary focus is not on the Jews because they have some special um, advantage in salvation, but because they were the avenue through which Messiah was going to come. That's the whole story. It was soon as Genesis 3 that the the seed of the woman is going to crush the serpent's head and he's going to bruise his heel. This is the focus from now on. The rest of the stuff we're reading is the whole Old Testament story about bringing us Messiah and Satan trying to stop it. That's why we go from the whole human race at the time of the flood immediately right down into Abraham's family. And then from Abraham, not all of his family, we go down into Jacob's family. And then we eventually end up just with the the tribe of Judah, really, is who we're focusing on at the end, because it's all about keeping the avenue open for the Messiah to come. But even though that's where our focus is, because it's the plan of salvation, God is wanting to save people from all the different branches of the family. And so we find in the Old Testament that he's concerned with the Edomites, and he's concerned with the the Ammonites and the Moabites, and he's concerned with um, those in... in, um, Siam, which is, uh, um, which is China. Uh, it's in Isaiah. He talks about the Chinese that he's concerned with. It's very interesting. So God wants to save all peoples. And we also have the, um, the Ethiopians mentioned and the Queen of Sheba. And God is interested. But, but we don't focus on what's happening in their cultures because in none of those cultures was the Messiah coming. That's the reason the Bible is focused. But many people read it and they misunderstand and they think there's some special relationship if you have some genetic uh, connection to Abraham. There's not. The only special connection is if you have faith in Jesus Christ, the faith of Abraham. So God seeks to save everyone. And it's through Jesus Christ that he's provided for that salvation. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace, for your love, for the truth that you revealed in Christ. And we ask that you will continue to enlighten our minds, that we will not be deceived by the king of the north or the king of the south, by imperialism or atheism, that we will be that remnant people who presents the truth about our designer God, our creator, that who, who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and all that in them is, and call people out of both of these other systems back to a unified belief in a, in a God who is our creator, who built reality to operate in harmony with your own nature of love, and show how all the pieces fit together. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen.